welcome to the Everyday Neuro podcast series. I'm your host, Dr. Janine Cooper, and I'm aiming to provide you with the knowledge and inspiration to understand the fascinating world of the human brain. Today's episode is all about ethics in research and how, in the past, research experiments have been conducted that by today's standards are now deemed as potentially harmful and unethical. I'll be telling you about three studies that may make you question not only the impact that taking part in research has on the participants, but also on the investigators and how the results are shared or disseminated. So what is ethics in research and why are such considerations critical? Well, if you are an undergraduate studying psychology, you often learn in your studies that ethics are the norms or standards for conduct that distinguish between right and wrong. They help to determine the difference between acceptable and unacceptable behaviours. In order for research to result in benefit and minimise risk or harm, it must be conducted ethically. I first came across the topic of ethics when I was in the first year of my psychology degree. As part of the curriculum, first year undergrads like me had to volunteer to take part in two research projects that were currently being conducted within the psychology department. This was to help provide, where possible, participants for the projects that were being conducted by the honours, masters and PhD students, as well as the academic staff. I remember doing a project that investigated attention and I was introduced to a very popular test of inhibition called the Stroop test. On entering the so-called lab, because basically it was just like a small room containing a table and a chair with no windows, I was asked to read the participant information form and then if I was happy to proceed, which I was, sign my acceptance. On completing the task, I was provided with a debrief sheet that informed me about what the study was likely to find, and I went on my way. So there we have it. For those of you who are currently studying psychology or have friends that are taking psychology courses, this may sound like a very familiar scenario. For those of you who have followed a different career field, then the information and debrief sheets are two very necessary requirements to enable ethical guidelines to be followed. Basically, you have to inform the participants about the gist of the experiment before they take part, and if there's any risk or harm that may be likely to occur to them, you need to let them know so that they they can do it with an, an informed consent. Similarly, at the end of the procedure, the experimenter must then divulge a summary of the objectives of the study, along with guidance should they wish to seek more information or support, which will then depend on the nature or topic being explored. Now, this may sound fairly straightforward, as I've just chosen to give a very brief summary of a much more complicated process. But for anyone who has conducted a psychology research project, then they will know that this is a crucial part, as without prior consideration and approval by a regulated ethics committee of your research project and its design and procedure and its objectives, you should not be allowed to conduct the research. The main reason is that, as I mentioned earlier, the research should result in benefit and minimise risk of harm. So let me now introduce you to our first research study that was conducted in the 1960s that has been deemed as potentially unethical. 
All the while, imagine you were a participant or perhaps a friend or family member is the volunteer. And that may help you to immerse yourself in the project and really think about how ethical aspects of the study are. The first example is a series of experiments conducted by Stanley Milgram, who famously investigated the topic of obedience to authority. Inspired by Hannah Arendt's report on the trial of Adolf Eichmann, who was charged with managing and facilitating the mass deportation of Jews to ghettos and killing centres in the German-occupied East, Milgram investigated Arendt's claim that the evil acts come from ordinary people following orders as they do their jobs. Milgram devised an elaborate study that could investigate this in a lab-based environment. Milgram staged experiments in which participants were ordered to administer dangerous shocks to fellow volunteers. So let me explain this in a bit more detail. Milgram recruited pairs of participants to take part in a memory test. One volunteer was given the job of teacher, the other learner. Each time the learner gave a wrong answer on a memory test, the teacher was instructed by the experimenter to give the learner an electric shock and to increase the voltage with every error. Now I'm sure this thought is abhorrent to many of you and yet Milgram famously reported that more than 70% of the participants administered what they thought might be fatal shocks to an innocent stranger. In the experiment, most participants asked the experimenter whether they should continue and the experimenter issued a series of commands to sort of coerce the participant along. So, for example, please continue or they could have said the experiment requires that you continue or you have no other choice, you must go on. Imagine now that you are in the position of the teacher and your learner has consistently made errors and that you're told to give a danger, severe shock, a potentially extremely harmful level of electric shock. Now, would you do it? I will reveal something to you, though. The experiment was a sham in that all the learner participants were confederates to the study or basically actors in on the study. They were provided with a script and so no real shocks were actually ever given. Perhaps this has made you breathe a sigh of relief. However, it was not until after the experiment had been completed that apparently the participants who had been in the teacher role discovered that this was fake. Rather, for the whole time they were being asked to administer the shocks, they were naive to the real objectives of the study and thought that the electric shocks were in fact real and that the pain experienced by the learner was indeed actual physical pain. Now, do you think this experiment is ethical? From the perspective of the overall experiment, no one was actually hurt or were they? Imagine you were the teacher again. How might this experiment affect your well-being? Could this have created stress and anxiety and remorse, or perhaps even shown you what you were capable of, of in such a situation? Collectively known as the Milgram experiment, this work has demonstrated the human tendency to obey commands issued by an authority figure and more generally the tendency for behaviour to be controlled more by the demands of the situation rather than by characteristic traits of the person. 
However, in an interesting article by Nick Haslam and Gina Perry, published online in The Conversation, the results of the original studies may now be less dramatic than first believed, as Milgram may have manipulated the experiment to get the results he desired. If you'd like to read more about this topic, then you can access a link to it in the show notes on the Everyday Neuro website podcast page. Indeed, there's a great deal of discussion about the study and if it can be replicated, especially due to bias. But one thing that is certain is that the procedures used in the early 1960s are deemed unethical by today's standards due to the risk of the mental health of the participants who thought they may be agreeing to take part in a memory experiment who were actually then asked to do something far more sinister. Here, the harm appears to far outweigh the benefit. What shocks me most, sorry, please excuse the pun, is that Gina Perry's findings revealed that of the 700 or so people who took part in the different variations of Milgram studies between 1961 and 1962, very few were truly debriefed. A true debriefing would have involved explaining that the shocks weren't real and that the other person was not injured. Instead, Milgram's sessions were mainly focused on calming the participants down before sending them on their way. So many left in a state of considerable distress. While the truth was revealed to some months or even years later, many were simply never told a thing. So to me, that's where the break of ethics really lies. It's the fact that the people taking part were misled to believe it was a memory experiment and then never truly told the truth about what they had taken part in. So that's the debrief section of the study. So just to let you know, Milgram is listed as number 46 on the American Psychological Association's list of the 100 most eminent psychologists of the 20th century. So, okay, that's the first study. It seems as though the break in ethical consideration occurred at the debrief section. I'm now going to introduce you to a second study, and it's very interesting and very famous, and is known as the Stanford Prison Experiment. And it was conducted by Professor Philip Zimbardo and his colleagues in 1973. The objective of the study was to investigate whether the brutality reported amongst guards in America's prisons were in fact due to statistic personalities of the guards or had more to do with the environment. So a little bit like with Milgram, was it to do with the personalities of the guards or was it to do with the situation, the environment that they were in? This experiment is described really well elsewhere and in a lot of detail by Saul McLeod. So I'm going to summarize the procedure using this information and a link to the more detailed account can be found in the show notes. Zimbardo converted a basement of the Stanford University Psychology Building into a mock prison and advertised asking for volunteers to participate in a study of the psychological effects of prison life. The applicants who answered the ad were given diagnostic interviews and personality tests to eliminate candidates with psychological problems, medical issues or history of crime or drug abuse. Of the 75 men interviewed, 24 were judged to be the most physically and mentally stable, the most mature and the least involved in antisocial behaviours and were asked to be participants in the study. 
Participants were then randomly assigned to either the role of a prisoner or of a guard, and they then went to enact this in a simulated prison environment. If you had been assigned the role of a prisoner, then you were arrested at your own home without warning and taken to the local police station. There, the prisoner was fingerprinted, photographed and booked, and they were blindfolded and driven to the mock prison environment. Now, this prison environment was very realistic and it had barred doors and windows, bare walls and small cells. So, what do you think so far? Are any alarm bells ringing for you? Maybe some will when I continue. When the prisoners arrived at the prison, they were stripped naked, deloused, had all their personal possessions removed and locked away, and were given prison clothes and bedding. They were issued a uniform and referred to by their number only. Now, the guards worked in shifts of three for eight hours each, and the other guards remained on call. So remember, there's about 12 guards Guards were instructed to do whatever they thought was necessary to maintain law and order, and they had to command the respect of the prisoners. But it was made clear that no physical violence was permitted. So Zimbardo observed the behaviour of the prisoners and guards as a researcher, and also acted as a prison warden in this experiment. And I think we'll find that sometimes involving yourself in an experiment isn't always going to be a good thing. Now, this is where things really got out of control. Even though all the men involved had been screened for antisocial tendencies, within hours of beginning the experiment, some guards began to harass prisoners. At 2.30 a.m., prisoners were awakened from sleep by blasting whistles for the first of many what they called counts. And the counts served as a way of familiarizing the prisoners with their numbers. More importantly, they provided a regular occasion for the guards to exercise control over the prisoners. Now, the prisoners soon also adopted prisoner-like behavior too, and they talked about prison issues a great deal of the time. And they also told tales on each other to the guards. They started taking the prison rules really seriously as though they were there for the prisoners' benefit and infringement was spelled disaster for them all. Some even began siding with the guards against prisoners who did not obey the rules. So here we're seeing almost that kind of idea of you're conforming with your captor. The prisoners were taunted with insults and petty orders. They were given pointless and boring tasks to accomplish and they were generally dehumanized by the so-called guards. Push-ups were common and physical punishment was often imposed by the guards whereby one of the guards stepped on the prisoners' backs while they did push-ups or made other prisoners sit on the backs of fellow prisoners doing the push-ups. And remember, they were told no physical violence should be administered. Because the first day passed without so-called incident, the guards were surprised and totally unprepared for the rebellion which broke out the morning of the second day. During this time, the prisoners barricaded themselves inside their cells uh, by putting their beds against the door 
And so the guards called in reinforcements. And the three guards who were waiting on standby but on duty came in and the night shift guards voluntarily remained on duty. The guards retaliated by using a fire extinguisher which shot a stream of skin-chilling carbon dioxide and they forced the prisoners away from the doors. The guards broke into each cell, stripped the prisoners naked and took the beds out. The ringleaders of the prisoner rebellion were then placed into solitary confinement and after this the guards generally began to harass and intimidate the prisoners and it only got a lot lot worse from there as you can read in Sol McLeod's article. So where was Zimbardo? Where is the research investigator at this time? Imagine you're a participant in this study. Would you be expecting some intervention at this point? I know I certainly would. After all, this is a research study and the ethical rules suggest that it should be facilitating benefit, not harm. Zimbardo had intended the experiment to run for a fortnight, but on the sixth day it was terminated and Christina Maslacht, um, a PhD student who'd been brought in to conduct interviews with the guards and prisoners, strongly objected when she saw the way that the prisoners were being abused by the guards. Now, just a little bit of trivia for you, Christina Maslacht actually then went on to marry um, Philip Zimbardo. But anyway, getting back to the study, apparently she questioned what Zimbardo was doing to the participants. And strangely, out of 50 or more outsiders who had seen the prison, she was actually the only one who ever questioned its morality. In an interview with Zimbardo in 2008, he recalled that... It wasn't until much later that I realized how far into my prison role I was at that point, that I was thinking like a prison superintendent rather than a research psychologist. So there we go. It's really dangerous when the researcher who's supposed to be conducting the experiment is getting too absorbed into the experiment itself. After the prison experiment was terminated, Zimbardo interviewed the participants. And here's an example of an excerpt. Most of the participants said they had felt involved and committed. The research had felt real to them. One guard said, I was surprised at myself. I made them call each other names and clean the toilets out with their bare hands. I practically considered the prisoners cattle. And I kept thinking I had to watch out for them in case they tried something. Another guard said, acting authoritatively can be fun. Power can be a great pleasure. And another said, during the inspection, I went to cell two to mess up a bed which a prisoner had just made. And he grabbed me, screaming that he had just made it and that he was not going to let me mess it up. He grabbed me by the throat and although he was laughing, I was pretty scared. I lashed out with my stick and hit him on the chin, although not very hard. And when I freed myself, I became angry. Now, I don't know about you, but hearing the accounts of the people that were in the role of guards, in some ways, it sounds like they were having a little bit of fun and maybe weren't taking it too seriously. But also, could they just be acting up? I always wonder whether or not they just were trying to get away with acting like brats, quite frankly. Most of the guards found it difficult to believe that they had behaved in this brutalizing way and many said that they hadn't known the side of them existed or that they were capable of such things. So again, when in the situation, does that mean that your personality changes? That's one of the questions that Zimbardo's study apparently raises. 
The prisoners too, we've got to see it from their viewpoint, couldn't believe that they had responded in the submissive, cowering, dependent way that they had. Several claimed to be assertive types normally, but when asked about the guards, they described the usual three stereotypes that can be found in any prison. Some guards were good, some were tough but fair, and some were cruel. So the results of the study, as I said earlier, suggested that people can be influenced by the situation they're in rather than their own disposition or personality. And it could be viewed as supporting the earlier work of Milgram. However, compared to real life, the guards and prisoners were playing a role. And so just as method actors do, their behavior may not be influenced by the same factors which affect behavior in reality. And hence the study has what we call low ecological validity. The study has received many ethical criticisms, including a lack of fully informed consent by the participants, as Zimbardo himself did not know what would happen in the experiment due to its unpredictable design. Zimbardo said he believed the experiment was ethical before it began, but in hindsight, it was actually unethical, because he and the others involved had no idea the experiment would escalate to a point of abuse that it did. Also, the prisoners did not consent to being arrested at home, and this was actually a breach of the ethics of Zimbardo's own contract that all of the participants had signed. Participants playing the role of the prisoners were not protected from psychological harm and experienced incidents of humiliation and distress. So, for example, one prisoner had to be released after 36 hours because of uncontrollable bursts of screaming, crying and anger. Now, I question, was this genuine or was this just part of the role they were playing as the prisoner? We have to consider both sides. Zimbardo was surprised by the behavior that was shown in the experiment, and it is unlikely that the emotional distress experienced by the prisoners could not have been predicted from the outset. However, this study was approved by the Office of Naval Research, the Psychology Department, and the University Committee of Human Experimentation. Now, this committee also did not anticipate the prisoners' extreme reactions, and they basically looked at alternative methodologies to see whether or not these would cause less distress to the participants, but at the same time give the desired information. But nothing suitable could be found. So I wonder, do you think this study should have gone ahead? Should it have been granted ethical approval in the first place? As it did take place then it was very important that they made sure at the end of the experiment that the welfare of the participants were investigated. Extensive group and individual debriefing sessions apparently were held and all the participants returned post-experimental questionnaires several weeks, several months and also yearly intervals later. Zimbardo concluded that there was no lasting negative effects and in light of the controversy that followed the study, I am quite surprised that there were no issues at all. After all, people were arrested at their own homes, they were stripped naked, deloused and had their heads shaved, all for this research study. And perhaps it should make us question why anyone should go through this, even outside of research. Zimbardo strongly argues that the benefits gained about our understanding of human behavior and how we can improve society should outbalance the distress caused by the study. But there were some strengths, so let's talk about those. 
One strength was that it has actually altered the way US prisons are run. So, for example, juveniles accused of federal crimes are no longer housed before trial with adult prisoners due to a risk of violence against them. And another strength is that the harmful treatment of the participants led to the formal recognition of ethical guidelines by the American Psychological Association. So now studies must go through an extensive review by an institutional review board in the US or an ethics committee in the UK and the same here in Australia. And I'm sure it's like that in many other countries before they are implemented. The study is also the focus of a 2015 movie that was uh, basically released and received positive reviews. It was directed by Kyle Patrick Alvarez and the movie is based on the Zimbardo's study and when it was released it was at a poignant time in the United States when, as stated by Jacqueline Thompson, three top officials of the American Psychological Association stepped down after a 542-page report described how members of the organization who had worked with the Department of Defense were actually complicit in the torture of individuals by federal agencies. So suddenly, we're now seeing that this topic of ethics, which many of us might go, oh, it's a bit of a dull topic. I think I hopefully am highlighting just how important ethics really are. But it's not just the participants of research that may be harmed. And sometimes the way a study is discussed and portrayed or disseminated may also be under scrutiny. This brings me to the final study I'm going to share with you. And it's about three identical triplets who were raised apart by adoptive parents, unaware that they were triplets, and only discovered one another when fate brought them together at university. So like the Stanford Prison Experiment, this has actually become the topic of a 2018 movie called Three Identical Strangers. And I'm sure some of you may have seen this docudrama. David Kelman, Eddie Galland and Bobby Shaffron had been adopted to separate parents by the Louise Wise Adoption Service and had absolutely no idea of each other's existence and neither had their adoptive families. Like some fantastic miracle, the siblings were reunited with one another at university age, but behind the happiness was anger. In the movie, we see the adoptive parents questioning why they had never been told that the boys were triplets. In the movie, the adoptive parents confront the evasive officials at the Louise Wise Adoption Service, and it's revealed that the boys were separated deliberately, as were many other sets of adoptive twins, based on the decision of Peter B. Neubauer, a psychologist who had developed a research project to explore the nature versus nurture debate, where apparently one boy was adopted by a low-income family, another by a middle-class couple, and the third to wealthy parents. Now, there seems to be a huge huge question here over how the study ever received ethical approval and the results were never published. In Tim Wardle's movie, Peter B. Neubauer is depicted in a negative way and so many people who have watched the docudrama may have come to believe the psychologist was without morals and ethics. If you have watched the movie, did you consider Neubauer a potential villain? 
Well, after reading a lot of information about this case, I came across some additional information in an article by Lois Oppenheim, a scholar associate member of the New York Psychoanalytical Society, amongst other things. And I'm going to provide you with her take on the story. And we'll ask you again at the end whether or not you still consider Neubauer as a bad apple. According to Oppenheim, the movie has ignored critical contextual information and omits evidence. I'll now summarize and directly quote from Oppenheim's article, a link to which is in the show notes. In the late 1950s and before Peter Neubauer was involved, Dr. Viola Bernard was the chief psychiatric consultant to the Louise Wise Adoption Services. She created a policy to separate identical twins for adoption. Dr. Bernard's intent with the separation was apparently benign. In a recently uncovered memo, she expressed her hope that early mothering would be less burdened and divided and the child's developing individuality would be facilitated. Other agencies at the time also practiced separation. According to Oppenheim, in more than half a century since the triplets' placements, professional opinion has evolved. She says, generally speaking, it is no longer believed that separation benefits mothers or children, yet the film leaves viewers believing that it was Peter Neubauer who separated the twins and that he did so for the purposes of a secret research project, despite the fact that they had already been placed with families by the agency before his study began. Adoptions at the time were closed adoptions. The research team had an obligation to preserve confidentiality about the biological history of the children. As Dr. Lawrence Perlman, a clinical psychologist and researcher in the twin study, has written, the adoptive parents entering into a contract with the Louise Wise Services were guaranteed that they would not know anything about the family background of their infants, including the possible existence of biological siblings. Oppenheim goes on to say, The open adoption movement was many years away. The filmmakers omit the information that the study began long before the rules of informed consent were codified by the National Research Act of 1974. Several researchers were involved in the study over approximately 15 years, and it is important to also note that it had funding by the National Institute of Mental Health after review. As stated by Oppenheim, the basic premise of the film is that the triplet separation was a heartless scheme undertaken at the expense of the children's well-being to enable a scientific study to take place. And she claims that this is complete fiction. She says the filmmakers could have created a documentary about the complexities of the twin study, its origins and context, and the changing standards of ethical norms and lessons learned. This might have been less dramatic, but it would have made an important contribution to our understanding of gene research and parenting. So we've got a really big piece of information there from Oppenheim, which goes against the sort of moral standards of the movie, I suppose. So now after hearing the article by Oppenheim, I'll ask you again, is Peter Neubauer a villain? If you have seen the movie, well, then... In light of Oppenheim's article, maybe I could ask, are the documentary makers behaving ethically? If we are to listen to Oppenheim, did the filmmakers of Three Identical Strangers deliberately create a skewed version of real life to create drama? Well, as with all things ethical, it comes down to the question of whether the benefit outweighs the harm. And for this one, I'd like you to decide. 
Thank you so much for listening. And once again, please take really good care of that amazing, super organic computer that you have. And I look forward to talking to you again in the next Everyday Neuro podcast. Take care.